This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your Radio Doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on Your Radio Doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning, and thank you for starting your day with us here on Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. We usually air at 5 o'clock on Saturday afternoons, but I'm enjoying this occasional shift last week and today, coming in at 10 o'clock on Saturday morning. Today, our topic is epilepsy, a disorder which involves seizures. Here to discuss definitions of seizure, epilepsy, causes and treatments is Dr. Chris Skidmore. Dr. Christopher Skidmore is an associate professor, the vice chair of neurology clinic affairs, and the associate director of the neurology residency program at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. And there are wonderful resources for patients with epilepsy and their families. And to hear about them, we'll hear from the president and CEO of the Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania, Ms. Missy Dalloway. So let's begin. Welcome, Chris. So good of you to join us. Thank you for having me. I think it, it would be helpful for our listeners to define seizure and then epilepsy. Yeah, sure. So um, our brains are like supercomputers. The nerve cells communicate by sending electrical signals from one part of the brain to the other or from one part of the brain all the way down to the big toe in your foot. And we need that normal electricity for the brain to function. And a seizure happens when there's a burst or a storm of abnormal electrical discharges that really takes over and disrupts the normal brain activity. And then you get the symptoms of a seizure. And Epilepsy is simply somebody who's prone to having recurrent seizures. And so I know there are different types of seizures. We see the ones that are in TV shows and that sort of thing, but it's more nuanced than that. Could you talk about the different types of seizures and how they manifest? Yeah, I think if you ask most people on the street, what's a seizure? They're probably going to talk about somebody who's stiffening up and shaking all over. What used to be called a grand mal seizure now is called a tonic-clonic seizure. And I think that's what most people think about when they think about a seizure. But the reality is anything that your brain can experience or generate, so uh, vision, hearing, motor activity, sensory function, all of those things can be manifestations of the seizure. 
And sometimes they're just brief kind of staring off and unresponsive episodes where somebody looks like they're awake and they should be able to answer you, but they're just staring off into space kind of blindly. And so when we talk about seizures, there's a whole range of seizures from very mild seizures to very dangerous seizures uh, and kind of everything in between. And I think it all comes down to what parts of the brain are being stimulated. And so epilepsy is the kind of the big category. And then when you first kind of branch off that big category, there's focal epilepsy and there's generalized epilepsy. And generalized epilepsy is the first one it's easy to kind of think about because in generalized epilepsy, when we look at that abnormal electrical activity, it's really all over the brain all at once, hence the term generalized. Whereas in focal epilepsy, it could start on the right side of my brain, it could start on the left side of my brain, it could start in multiple spots. But the key is the abnormal electrical discharge or storm starts in one spot and still can spread over the whole brain. And so the different focal epilepsies and generalized epilepsies can generate different seizures depending on how the abnormal electrical activity is activating the brain. That's the best explanation I've ever heard. It's almost like you're looking at the sky and the bolt of lightning can come from the northwest or the east and it just decides where it wants to surface. And so that might be, as you said, there's a range of uh, what we would see or what the patient's exam would manifest. So there is the the more dramatic or the generalized uh, stiffening of limbs and the person is uh, unresponsive, they can't communicate during the seizure, or somebody who's just staring for a little bit and you think they're not listening. But in between, there might be a seizure activity that leaves shaking in just one arm or part of their face. And um, it's so scary to watch someone having a seizure. And we'll talk about that a little bit later, what people witnessing a seizure should do to help the, the uh, patient. But I guess the other interesting thing, fascinating really, is that in some cases a patient can tell when they're about to have a seizure because they get a certain feeling, whether it's discomfort in their belly. I never knew that could be one of the ways, but I always think of it as being a smell or a sensation uh, in, you know, like a headache or something. Tell us about an aura, what that means and how it helps. Yeah. So, so those auras uh, or warning signs of a seizure, about half of people with epilepsy and seizures have a warning. And that warning can often last for seconds up to minutes and can really be a vital clue for a patient that they may be on the way to having a bigger seizure. Auras tend to happen in the focal epilepsies. Um, and it can be, they're basically very, very tiny seizures that are in very small areas of the brain. So the person's level of consciousness or ability to interact with their surroundings hasn't been disrupted yet, but they might see a visual phenomenon or hear um, angels singing um, or have this upset stomach feeling in the stomach, like butterflies or being on a roller coaster that kind of rises up through them. And so there's a whole host of kind of different symptoms that somebody can have that gives us a clue because it's often the very first beginning part of where the seizure is starting from kind of in the brain. And for patients, it's wonderful if they do have that warning, because then they can know to alert somebody or get to a safe place if they're about to have that bigger seizure. But unfortunately, about half of people don't have that warning. And seizures literally are just kind of occurring out of the blue, out of the blue sky. And then boom, just one day at one moment, all of a sudden has a seizure. Mm -hmm. So we talk about conditions that can provoke a seizure. And as we say with all medical issues, there are certain things not in our control, like genetics, but we, we really 
try to focus our advice for patients on what they can control. Let's talk about some of the things that can provoke a seizure. First of all, do genetics play a role? Well, I mean, genetics do play a role. The genetics is still really complicated. So it's not as simple as, you know, two parents with blue eyes should have a blue-eyed child. It's That's very simple genetics. We know that the genetics are, are more complex. And over the last decade, there's just been this explosion in the number of genes that we have identified. Um, and we know that some of the genes can run in families. So there are well-described families that uh, can have certain types of epilepsy, and it can kind of run throughout a family. We also know that some of the genetic mutations are spontaneous. So even though your parents don't have it, your brothers and sisters may not have it, it could have been a very spontaneous mutation in you as an individual when you were developing. And so the genetics get complicated because most of the genes are not necessarily uh, directly causing epilepsy, but in the right setting, uh, maybe with the right injury or the right, right environmental stresses, can increase the likelihood that that individual will have a seizure or have epilepsy. So for instance, not everyone with a brain tumor has seizures, but a subset of patients do. And so most likely, those subset of patients that do have seizures in the setting of a brain tumor probably have some susceptibility gene that's making their, their brain more likely to generate seizures um, and, and, and kind of go down that road. But the good thing is, even if you have that genetic marker, the treatments that we have work because we're just treating the seizures and we don't have to worry about treating the genetics so much. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. How about drugs or things that, that we can control or what people really should know about are the common causes? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of, um, so I think anybody with uh, seizures and epilepsy uh, needs to try to lead a healthy life as possible. And so what do I mean by that? You know, I think it's the normal things that we would expect. I, I want somebody to eat at least three meals a day because very, very low blood sugars, um, very low blood sugars can sometimes cause seizures. We want people to uh, avoid excessive uh, alcohol consumption because alcohol withdrawal can lead to seizures. We want them to avoid, um, you know, toxic drugs like cocaine and heroin, uh, methamphetamine, because all of those illegal drugs can also kind of provoke seizures in somebody's brain. And sleep. I mean, sleep is, we're hearing more and more about the value of sleep just in general for our health. And it's true for people with epilepsy as well, because we know that sleep deprivation for some people can actually be a trigger. And so we try to advise people to try to get seven to nine hours of sleep a night. And I tell my patients, I said, look, if you know you're going to go out to a party, that's fine, but just plan so you can sleep in the next day. So you're not burning the candle at both ends. Sure. And then there are other things like now that medical marijuana is more available, we have to warn people that if the THC is too concentrated, if it's too potent, especially if you're not getting it with a script and you're getting uh, non-regulated marijuana, it can be bad news. Yes. Yes, that that is absolutely true. I think if you look at marijuana, and I'm one of the medical marijuana doctors for our program, you know, we talk about marijuana, there's two main chemicals we talk about, cannabidiol, which is CBD, and the uh, THC, which is the compound that makes people hallucinate and feel high. And in animal studies, as well as human data, CBD has anti-seizure properties, but, but THC um, has the ability to potentially cause people to have seizures. And it's probably the ratio that's important. And ideally, we try to tell people to be on a ratio of 
20 to 1 of CBD to THC molecules. And so the, a lot of the street drugs that people get are going to be very high in THC. Mm-hmm. And so there's a possibility it could be triggering people's seizures. Interesting. And creatine. I think people are under the impression that if they can buy something at a health food store, well, health, everything must be healthy. Uh, not that things in the health food store are bad, but they can interact with your medicines and make them stronger or weaker. But creatine in specific, let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so creatine is a common supplement that uh, people might use at the gym to kind of build muscle. Um, and there have been several reports in the medical literature that it could actually increase your risk of seizures. Um, and I think that whole category of any supplements and herbal remedies, the reality is because they're not really uh, tested in the same way that drugs are in the United States, they're not really tightly regulated by the FDA, it gets to be a challenge to understand what the risks are. And so I, I always advise people, if you're about to try some new herbal remedy, at least let your doctor take a look and see what's in the literature so they can make sure it's safe for you. Sure. We have about 30 seconds left. I want to talk to our um, listeners about the tests that you do, because a seizure, as you mentioned, could be from a brain tumor. Maybe it's from trauma and a bleed. There's so many different causes for physical causes. So you're going to do a CAT scan or an MRI, and then we want to talk about an EEG or uh, a test that looks at those electrical impulses. And the other big thing is to remind patients to keep a log or their family member or friend who might be in their company in different conditions around the seizure that could be so helpful in tracking the pattern and the diagnosis. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Chris Skidmore from Jefferson. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Welcome back to your radio doctor. We're having a great discussion about epilepsy and how we test for it and medications that we'll talk about as well with Dr. Chris Skidmore. Chris, we were talking about uh, a patient who has a seizure. The one thing that you would like to emphasize, I know, is to not be fooled by a stereotype. There is no one presentation of seizure. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, so I think we talked about kind of how anything that we can experience as humans can be seen as a symptom of a seizure, right? So then, you know, the key here is that seizures are repetitive stereotyped events, meaning that any individual seizure typically looks the same from one to the next to the next. Now, somebody could have two seizure types or three seizure types, but each of those individual seizure types will look the same. Your average seizure is only two minutes in duration or less. 
right? Hmm. So most seizures are wow. very brief. So again, these brief stereotyped events are what we then raises the bar, the suspicion that this might be seizures and epilepsy. And that's when we start thinking about, okay, we have to work this person up to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. So let's say somebody says, was I daydreaming or was I having a deja vu? Was that a seizure? Was that a what we used to call petty mal? Was I staring into space or maybe I have narcolepsy, you know, that you fall asleep instantly? How do you as the physician distinguish who needs to be tested further? Yeah. So, I mean, absence epilepsy, which is a childhood epilepsy, those petty mal seizures now called absence seizures, where they're just staring off into space for anywhere from three to five seconds on average. And that in and of itself is very brief, but the problem is they could have 80 of those a day. Usually these children mm. come to our attention because they were doing a certain grade level in school. Let's say they were getting A's and B's and all of a sudden now they're getting C's and D's. And so it's the astute teacher that says, hey, something's going on you know, with your child, I think you need to go talk to your pediatrician or talk to your doctor. And that's typically how they can kind of come to our attention. You know, I think um, it's not uncommon that if you don't lose awareness with your event, so, um, and you're just having these repetitive events as humans, we do a great job kind of blowing things off and ignoring stuff. And it's not until typically somebody has that bigger event, either where they lost consciousness, lost awareness, or had a full-blown tonic-clonic seizure that then they say, oh, this is a medical emergency. They end up in the emergency room and then they get referred to see a neurologist or an epilepsy specialist like myself. And so that's typically kind of how they kind of come to us is usually when they have that bigger event. Mm -hmm. And what are the steps you take to look into it? Yeah, so I think the first and foremost is getting that history to kind of understand what happens during the event and see if they are stereotyped. How long do they last? We'll talk to anybody who's witnessed it. So I've I've called people's barbers and mechanics, whoever saw it. If we got a phone number for them, I'm trying to give them a call to get an understanding of kind of what happened during the events that we're talking about. And I think then the next thing is talking about getting that EEG in the office. So an EEG stands for electroencephalogram. And it's basically a technology that just measures the electrical activity of your brain. You put a bunch of little wires on your scalp. And believe it or not, we can actually record the electrical activity being generated by the brain. And we're looking for these little electrical short circuits um, that tell us that this person's at risk for epilepsy or seizures. Um, and then we'll do an MRI, a really good quality MRI, to look for a structural abnormality that would tell us, hey, this is a potential cause for the epilepsy. Yeah. So a structural abnormality for our listeners means a tumor, or maybe there's a hereditary or congenital issue with uh, a misshaped uh, part of the brain. Is that what you mean by structural abnormality? Yeah, exactly, right? So anything that's disrupting the normal nerve cells, so whether it's um, evidence of old trauma, uh, a brain tumor, a stroke, abnormal blood vessels in the wrong spot that have leaked some blood, mm -hmm. anything that's irritating the brain surface that then could act as a seizure focus. Sure, that makes sense. And we talked about advising patients, not well, a patient, post-ictal state. We want to talk about that as well. If somebody uh, does lose consciousness, or even if they're staring, pretty much, pretty often they don't remember the episode. Am I right about that? They often won't remember the episode. And then what often happens is, as I mentioned, the seizures are typically two minutes or less, but then there's this, mm -hmm. what we call post-ictal period. And that's the period of time mm -hmm. after the seizure when the person might still be very groggy, confused, disoriented. And so oftentimes when somebody comes in the first time, they'll say, oh no, their seizure was 15 minutes long. But in reality, mm -hmm. the actual seizure itself was two minutes. 
And then there was another 13 minutes of confusion and disorientation until they kind of got back, kind of back online. The way I explain it to patients, it's like when your computer freezes and you kind of have to mm. reboot the computer and it takes a few minutes for the computer to come back up. Well, it's the same thing that happens after a seizure. The brain basically shuts down for a period of time and basically is rebooting back up. And that can take a few minutes for some people. It can take hours for others. Mm. And so it's really quite variable depending on the individual. So there's this refractory period during which time that that assembly line of electrical potentials can happen. So again, reaching back to advising uh, people who witness a seizure maybe to keep a log, did it happen to your child, say? Did the, ha- did the seizure happen during the night or did you notice the seizure came about when the person was falling asleep or just waking up? Are they on any prescriptions? And you're going to ask about herbs, especially if the primary docs, you're so uh, focused on knowing to ask those questions. But I bet a lot of uh, general people in general wouldn't realize that some herbs or supplements can, you know, like we mentioned creatine, did their face or arm twitch before or during the seizure? Um, was their mouth open or closed during the seizure? How long did it last? And uh, do you remember, did the patient remember anything after recovering? All those things are worth uh, logging, don't you think? Absolutely. I think the more information you can give us, the easier it is for us to kind of figure out and get on the right path to figure out what this was and get somebody the needed treatment that they need. So more information um, is great. And these days it's wonderful. Um, Almost everyone has a video camera. And so a lot of times we'll Mm -hmm. say, if we're not sure, we'll tell the caregiver, the family member, the loved one to say, Hey, look, the next time this happens, I know it's stressful, but do me a favor, turn on the video because a picture's worth a thousand words. And there are examples where people show me it and I go, Oh, that's absolutely a seizure. I just have to look at 30 seconds of something, and I immediately know that's a seizure. Awesome. That's a brilliant idea. So a patient comes to you and they say, I've had a seizure. Now what? Where do we go in terms of treatment? Or Yeah, so I think it once if we're certain that it is a seizure and we're going to treat this as if it's epilepsy, so in other words, somebody that's at risk for having recurrent seizures, and the reason we treat you is to prevent you from having seizures because, unfortunately, people can have injuries. And, and, and occasionally die from a seizure. So we want to, if we know it's seizures and we know you're at risk for more of them, we want to treat you with medication. And the mainstay for mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of patients is just to be on a medication controlling the seizures. And two out of every three people that we put on medication are 100% controlled on the medicines, leading a normal life, kind of just following up with their doctor on a regular basis and just have to remember to take their medication. And I know you tell your patients that, Medications cannot cure epilepsy, but they can prevent seizures. So are there side effects? I know there are several drugs. Yeah, there's lots of drugs. There's over 20 drugs in the United States to treat epilepsy. Um, And there are lots of potential side effects. So the seizure medicines are designed to go into the brain and try to quiet down the electrical activity because we know that the seizure happens from that electrical storm. The problem is that the seizure meds don't just go to the bad part of the brain. They quiet down all of the electrical activity of the brain. And so if we need that electrical activity to be awake, to be alert, to learn, to do your job, right, drugs potentially have the, the effect of inter- influencing how you function on a day-to-day basis. So if you're used to multitasking and doing three things at once, now you actually may need to do one thing followed by another thing followed by another thing because it might interfere with your ability to juggle multiple things in your head at once, as an example. Hmm. And I know you said, Chris, we chatted the other day, 
probably at least two thirds of your patients will be, their seizures can be controlled with medications. What about the one third that need more help than medications? Where do you turn? Yeah, so unfortunately, despite all the explosion of drugs that we've had available to us in the United States, uh, one out of three people continue to have seizures. And if you continue to have seizures, um, again, it does put you at that higher risk category of having a significant injury from the seizure or what's called sudden unexplained death in epilepsy, which is abbreviated SUDEP, S-U-D-E-P. Um, and so for that reason, we look at other alternative treatments. So the first treatment we'll look at is if medicines are failing, is surgery an option? And so if you have predominantly focal epilepsy, we'll try to get an understanding of, is there one particular bad spot in the brain that the seizure are coming from that we can safely, and the key word is safely remove, and basically get rid of the epilepsy, but still have you be you and continue to do your things. And so surgery is an important thing. Uh, we have brain stimulation that we can do. There's a couple of three different brain stimulators that we can use in the United States. Um, and occasionally we'll do diet therapy as well. You know, um, some of um, diets such as the low glycemic index diet or the modified Atkins diet can also provide a benefit um, sometimes when medications are failing. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned enough sleep, sufficient sleep is so vital, but the, the healthy diet is to prevent episodes of hypoglycemia or low sugars can be dangerous, right? Correct. And then um, we've known for a long time in children with epilepsy, there um, basically the modified Atkins diet um, is a, a treatment um, where basically you try to eliminate as much sugar as possible. And it's a you know, a higher fat, higher protein concentration. Um, and th that is a diet that works both in kids as well as adults. Uh, there's also data that a low, low glycemic index diet. So glycemic index is how quickly is a food converted into sugar in our bloodstream. And you want to avoid uh, foods that very quickly. So a white potato very quickly gets converted into sugar. So you'd want to avoid things like white potato and eat more complex carbohydrates, for instance. So, um, mm -hmm. and I'm oversimplifying the diet therapy. It is very complex, but I think there's lots of things that we can offer as an alternative for those people not responding to medications. No, but it's great for people to hear you give a specific like that because then they feel better that there's a metric or there's something they can go to that will increase their chances for a healthier existence. You touched on this a little earlier, Chris. We want to prevent seizures for a lot of reasons uh, so that the person doesn't get hurt in the process of a seizure, meaning fall, hit their heads, get a concussion, break a, a limb or something. Can seizures cause brain damage itself? Can they cause further brain damage? So uh, the data is a little mixed on this. We know that when somebody has a very prolonged uh, tonic-clonic seizure, what's called status epilepticus, that can clearly cause damage to the brain. Uh, but there's also other long-term studies where they follow individuals over long periods of time. And if you continue to have years and decades of, you know, severe seizures, there is evidence that there is a decline in uh, kind of brain function and cognitive function over time. So there is some evidence that it can lead to damage over time. It's important to know. Let's take a little break and we'll return to hear more about epilepsy from Dr. Chris Skidmore. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. 
I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor. We continue our discussion on epilepsy. Chris, we're learning so much. We talked about... Uh, seizures, can they cause brain damage? How about little children that experience a febrile seizure or more than one? Are they at risk for epilepsy as they mature? So it really depends on what type of febrile seizure it is. So a febrile seizure is a, a seizure that a child would have with a very high fever before the age of five. And so a simple mm-hmm. febrile seizure is a full tonoclonic seizure lasting less than 15 minutes. And so even though it's the whole body shaking and it lasts a a decent amount of time, that's defined as a simple febrile seizure. Complex febrile seizures are seizures that last longer than 15 minutes or have those focal features. So maybe just the right side shaking to start with before it gets to the other side. And so if you have Mm -hmm. a complex febrile seizure, uh, it puts you at higher risk of developing epilepsy later on. So it's about a one in 40 risk of developing epilepsy later on Mm -hmm. in childhood. What about uh, a teen or an adult who has a history of seizures? What are the parameters for allowing somebody to drive again? A certain amount of time that they're seizure-free? or? Yeah, so it, it's, it varies by state. So in the state of Pennsylvania, if somebody is seizure-free for six months, um, there's paperwork that your physician can sign off on and you can get your license back. And so uh, in, in Delaware, technically it's three months, although I typically don't sign paperwork till six months. And New Jersey is also six months. So every state that somebody might live in might have a different rule on this. So it's always important to check with their local uh, you know, Department of Motor Vehicle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting. We're talking about the different age categories. I would guess a lot of people think seizures begin in childhood, but not so. As you said, they might come as a result of a focus in the brain where there's been a stroke or an abnormal blood vessel decides to leak a little blood or something. So they can occur at any age. Let's say a listener or I witness somebody having a seizure. What should I do when somebody having a seizure? I love that you pull out your phone and video it. That's a great idea. 
Yeah, I think first and foremost is take care of the person in front of you. So, you know, move anything that you can away from them. So if they're uh, moving around on the floor so they don't hit something to hurt themselves, uh, put something soft underneath their head so they don't bang their head on the ground if they're lying down. If they are in a chair and it's safe, you know, you can help have somebody help you lower them to the ground. Again, we're trying to prevent that fall and, and kind of head injury. And then it's just mm-hmm. kind of giving them space to have their seizure. Time it if you can. Film it if you can. Um, and then when it ends, make sure you turn somebody on their side. Occasionally, people can kind of vomit after a seizure um, or, you know, because they're in that confused state, their brain hasn't fully rebooted. They might swallow saliva down into their lungs. And so we don't want anything to be kind of swallowed into the lungs that shouldn't be there. And so by turning them on their side, it, it kind of makes sure that we help protect uh, their airway a little bit. And then just be aware and reassuring, you know, that, you know, let them know, because again, they're going to be coming to, they're probably going to be confused and just kind of reassure them, tell them, you know, you just had a seizure, we're here to help you and just kind of speak in a soft kind of calm tone while you're waiting for 911 or EMS to get there. Yeah, you're in a safe place. And and again, we want to make sure that they don't hit their head because that's going to compound the issue if they get a concussion, obviously. Um, when would you call an ambulance? Maybe if it's a, a somebody you don't know and you're not sure of their history, is this something new? Is it a toxin like alcohol withdrawal? How do you decide when to call an ambulance? Yeah, I, I think if you're out in public and you see somebody have a seizure, you don't know that person. Uh, you should call right away uh, just to kind of get uh, emergency services there. Uh, because while most seizures, again, end in under five minutes, if it doesn't, you need somebody there with medication to help treat them. Um, I think mm-hmm. if you're the individual or um, you're a caregiver or loved one of somebody who has seizures, you kind of know what their pattern is. And so I always tell people, to, you know, if it's their normal seizure and they're kind of coming back to as you would expect, that's great. Just let them recover. As long as they didn't injure themselves, just call my office and tell me they had a seizure and we can kind of talk about what to do with their medicines. Um, if it's an abnormal seizure, it's not stopping, they've injured themselves, then you certainly need to call uh, emergency medical services. Mm-hmm. So let's say you have a, a family member, a child or an adult with a seizure history, or if you yourself have seizures, you should have a seizure action plan. Tell us about that. Yeah, so a seizure action plan is a document that you can share, and we do a lot of this for children when they're at school. You can share it with the school nurse, you can share it with the the teachers at the school, is to say, this is what my seizures look like. If I have a seizure, this is who you should call. This, If I have an emergency or what's called a rescue medication, this is the medicine I should receive. And the Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania has this on their website that you can actually have your doctor complete. Um, and then you can keep a copy of it and you can give it to whoever needs to have that information. And so I always think it, yeah, I view this as this is your kind of brief story of your epilepsy. So that way, God forbid something happens and you're out in public, somebody else knows what to do. Mm-hmm. And it's, I guess it's good, too, for parents or caregivers to talk to teachers at school. As you say, here's what you should look for or if you notice this with our child, but also let them know what activities the child should avoid. Um, and remind your child too, if they start to sense or if they have an aura, don't be shy about telling the teacher or their counselor. I also read that if a child um, is sad or worried, they should tell. I guess that's just don't worry about not fitting in or don't worry that you'll be stigmatized. I think that's another important message, especially from the foundation. 
Yeah, I mean, and the stigma, unfortunately, associated with epilepsy is still there. You know, I think um, it's some of the work that I do, um, you know, on a regular basis with the Epilepsy Foundation and the Epilepsy Foundation there is there to advocate for uh, individuals with epilepsy and those kind of living with epilepsy. Um, because unfortunately, when people, again, think about somebody with a seizure, they're thinking of somebody who's falling on the ground, stiffening and shaking and not understanding really the, the complexity of the epilepsy disease. And the fact of the matter is, you know, there's, you know, 3 million people in the United States with epilepsy. I guarantee you, almost everyone that's going to listen to this broadcast has interacted with somebody with epilepsy and did not know it. Um, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's the problem is that people have kind of hide it and don't, don't talk about it. And so we certainly want yeah. you to educate. And so the Epilepsy Foundation offers to, to go into schools to teach a class. So, so if my child had epilepsy, I could have the Epilepsy Foundation come in and teach the teachers and the rest of the students about what is epilepsy and what do you do if somebody sees a seizure, right? We, we encourage everyone mm-hmm. to go out and get CPR training. We don't encourage everyone to go out and get seizure first aid, right? And but so this is a great way to kind of, I think, go out into the community and teach people what is seizures and what does it mean, and uh, and kind of go from there to kind of help educate uh, the lay public about it. Sure, and I think it's important to remind uh, patients, either parents of a child or a patient who has seizures, to wear that medical ID bracelet because they don't know where they'll be in time when they're alone maybe in an elevator, maybe uh, at somebody's home or someplace alone. And if the other people, as you say, don't know because it's been hidden, uh, they'll be much more reassured if they know, or this is not new in this person. And uh, I'll just make them comfort and follow the steps you mentioned, because it's it's very scary to watch somebody having a seizure. So the other really important message, Chris, your goal is to make your patients seizure-free. Aside from quality of life and making sure they don't get hurt in the process, why is that so important? Even if you're just having two a year, nope, we want to make it zero. Why is that so important? Yeah, so I, we mentioned earlier in the talk this concept of sudden unexplained death and epilepsy. So everyone, every person in society has a risk of sudden death. It's In the general population, it, the, the risk is two to three people per 10,000 population. But as soon as you have epilepsy, that risk doubles. It's it's in the range of five to seven per 10,000. And if you have the type of epilepsy and seizures that keep happening despite medical treatment, and you're having those tonic-clonic seizures, the risk can be 1% per year from dying from your epilepsy. And the reason that wow. we say don't, don't, don't um, become satisfied with one or two seizures per year is it only takes one seizure to have somebody pass away. And uh, I've lost way too many patients uh, to seizures, and, and we don't want to see that happen. And so if, if we can stop your seizures, either by adjusting your medications or by doing brain surgery, if we can stop your seizure with brain surgery, we've, we've studied it, and we know that we can return your risk of, of sudden death back to the normal population risk. And so we can take away that risk wow. and, and have you lead a full and healthy life. And so I don't want people to settle. I want people to if you're still having seizures, to go out there, seek a second opinion with another neurologist, with an epilepsy specialist like myself, uh, 
um, to kind of talk about what are the other options out there mm-hmm. and just to make sure that you've turned over every possible stone to make sure you're treated as best you can. And that's the beauty. We're so spoiled to live in Philadelphia because the bench of talent is very deep. And yes, we have fantastic mm-hmm. neurologists across the city and in the suburbs. But in this case, if you're still having seizures, if you're listening to us and you're still having seizures or your child, your loved one, take them to an epilepsy specialist. That, if people remember nothing else, I think that's a a great message for our listeners. Chris, where could people read more about epilepsy itself and resources available? Yeah, so if you go to the Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania, which is efepa.org, that's a great local resource. And then also the National Epilepsy Foundation, www.epilepsy.org epilepsy.com has wonderful resources about seizures and epilepsy and all the things that we talked about today. Beautiful. If somebody wanted to make an appointment to see you or one of your colleagues at Jefferson, number to call? Yeah. Yep. They would just call 1-800-JEFF-NOW. Mm-hmm. So I'll repeat them. 1-800-JEFF-NOW, just like it sounds, J-E-F-F-N-O-W to make an appointment. And those resources for reading epilepsy.com to read about epilepsy itself And we're going to be talking to Missy Dalloway from the Epilepsy Foundation next. That website is EFEPA, Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania, EFEPA.org. We'll repeat that before the show's over. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We've learned really helpful information, and I appreciate you spending your time with us. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. This is a wonderful program, and, and I'm glad we can get the message out there. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. At Independence Blue Cross, we believe in giving you the tools you need to pursue your healthiest life. From premiums as low as $0 per month to health discounts and cash rewards, it pays to have coverage with Independence. With the strongest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free 24-7 virtual doctor visits, you can feel confident that quality care is always within reach. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. Welcome back to our final segment of Your Radio Doctor. We call this segment Your Weekly Prescription. Our guest is Ms. Missy Dalloway, President and CEO of the Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania. Missy, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Marianne. Well, I'm really excited to share the resources that your foundation offers. And I I like the distinction that you made when we chatted the other day. There's the National Foundation, and yours is more geared to helping local communities. Let's talk about that first, if we could. 
Absolutely. So the Epilepsy Foundation Eastern PA is a local independent affiliate organization of the Epilepsy Foundation of America. Um, so what that means is that, you know, we are affiliated in um, our branding and our logos and we collaborate on nationwide initiatives. Um, while the Epilepsy Foundation of America is largely focused on funding research and really serves as our parent resource group, which is fantastic, and um, they have a ton of information and resources available, we as the Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania have the honor of being the direct boots on the ground, providing support services, educational programs, resources and referrals to our local epilepsy community. Um, so our office is located right in Center City, Philadelphia, but we serve the 18 counties of Eastern Pennsylvania, providing those local services. Um, so our programs go all the way up to the Wilkes-Barre Scranton area. Wow out to Lancaster, the Lehigh Valley, and everywhere in between. Beautiful. And uh, we're very spoiled at Jefferson because you're our neighbor nestled in at 9th and Wal 919 Walnut. Yes? Yes, that's uh -huh. correct. Mm -hmm. And we, as you know, uh, Dr. Chris Skidmore, I know you work closely with him in the Jeff uh, Epilepsy Department. Um, we talked about going into schools, educating teachers, faculty, know what to do if you see a child who has seizures, because we teach CPR at institutions. We talk about food and drug allergies, but epilepsy is out there. And there's, there's a lot of comfort to know what to do if you have a child at school who has a seizure. Missy, tell us, how did you become involved in the foundation? Sure. So um, my background has um, always been in fundraising and development. I have a real passion for um, nonprofits and, and working with the community. Um, but when I was in high school, I actually went to school at night to become an EMT. Um, and, you mm. know, through my experience as an EMT, you know, I was responding to um, all sorts of emergencies, seizures included. Um and that was really kind of when um, I developed a real interest and fascination with the brain and brain disorders. Um, so joining the Epilepsy Foundation Eastern PA just felt like a real melting point of my interest in the brain as well as fundraising. Uh, but coming to the Epilepsy Foundation Eastern PA was um, also a real um, realization moment for me because in my EMT training, we really only... Um, you know, studied and looked at one type of seizure. And that's the type of seizure that most of us are familiar with, the tonic-clonic, which is that kind of, you know, big convulsive seizure. Um, but there's so many different types of seizures that people have no idea about, you know, such as an absence seizure, which really can just look like someone kind of, you know, blanking out for a few moments. And I would think in a school setting that might so easily be confused for um, inattention, um, you know, someone, mm -hmm. you know, just not listening to the teacher. So it's so important that we know these various signs and symptoms to look for um, because our educators can really be that front line um, that could, you know, maybe make a family aware of a potential epilepsy diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that hasn't been noticed before. Mm -hmm. And as you say, epilepsy is hidden. It's sometimes hard to see. And patients and their family members can find it very isolating. I love the programs that your foundation offers to build a community, to make people feel like they're sharing uh, these experiences and uh, 
face these challenges together. Sleepaway camp for the younger children, retreats yes. for 18 to 30 and adults 30. Tell us briefly, we have a few minutes left, about the camp and the retreat and the older. Absolutely. So you're exactly right that, you know, epilepsy, unless someone were to have a seizure in front of you, you'd really have no idea that someone were living with epilepsy. Um, but really it's a disorder that affects one in 26 people. So we really wow. want to build community around that and, and bring it out of the shadows. So we do have a sleepaway camp for children ages eight to 17 living with epilepsy. That's called Camp Achieve, uh, just a fantastic program. Um, we always say it's our most special special and magical week of the year. Um, it's quite often the first time that these children are meeting other children living with epilepsy, and they're in a space where epilepsy is just a small piece of who they are. And um, it's this common bond. And the kids have the opportunity to really just be kids and participate in all traditional camp activities while having 24-7, you know, supervision, medical staffing. Um, as mentioned, we also have our young adult retreat for the 18 to 30-year-old crowds living with epilepsy. And then in the fall, we have our adult wellness weekend. And that's for the 30 and over crowds, but not only for individuals living with epilepsy, but also for the parents, caretakers, and spouses, um, because it really is a diagnosis that affects the full family. So we really like to dial into that caretaker space. And that's so thoughtful because whether a family's dealing with a cancer or epilepsy or a family member with diabetes, it does af affect the entire family. Um, and their fear and action plans. We talked about a seizure action plan that's so important. The other yes. thing I really like that you described was that at the camp for the children ages eight through 17, the counselors, they've all either had epilepsy or they have siblings with epilepsy. Am I right about that? So they understand Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. So almost all of our counselors either were campers themselves or are the siblings or loved one um, of someone with epilepsy. So it really is just this full community um, where our our kids realize that they're not alone in their diagnosis and they're being mentored um, by you know young adults and adults who really get it. Missy, thanks for joining us. I know the Epilepsy Foundation of Eastern Pennsylvania. We've mentioned your website earlier, efepa.org, Epilepsy Foundation. Yes, absolutely. Do you have a phone number if people wanted to call your center? Yes, our phone number is 215-629-5003. And also our email address um, to get in touch with us is efepa at efepa.org. Beautiful. For our listeners, again, efepa.org. Missy Dalloway, you're a superstar. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Marianne. I you, appreciate the opportunity. You offer so much help to people that need it. It's wonderful. Thank you. And now for your real champion. I call this segment Rosie the Riveter. In September of 2020, one of your real champions was May Cryer. Recently, I had the good fortune to chat with May again to update her extraordinary work. May will tell you, I'm not a women's liver, I'm an equal writer. Women are just as capable as men, and she proved that in her role as Rosie the Riveter during World War II. Rosie the Riveter 
one of the most famous icons in American history. She was the star of the campaign, which called on American women to join the workforce to replace the men who enlisted in the armed services. But the famous image didn't tell the story of one woman. It was about millions of Rosies who joined the war effort. May grew up on a farm in North Dakota during the Great Depression. Her great-grandfather settled there because of the Homestead Act, so she considers herself part of a pioneer family. Within weeks of Pearl Harbor, her father cried when her brother left for war. Her uncle was a rural mail carrier who also enlisted, and his job went to May's mother, who had to deal with those harsh winters in the Midwest. Farmers would time her, and if she didn't show up on schedule, they'd go out on horseback or tractor to look for her, worried that she might be stuck in the snow. One of the first women to fill a man's job, May called her mother her first Rosie. In May of 1943, with our nation at war, May was 17, just finished high school. She and her sister, Layola, and their friend, Kathy, headed to Seattle to work and have fun for the summer. They lived in a boarding house and worked for Boeing. Cryer said, when the war came, every man, woman, and child dropped what they were doing. We all pulled together, we all helped, and we did it to save our country. Within two weeks, she learned how to drill, work with sheet metal, and finally became a riveter. While she loved the work and stayed through the war, she and the other Rosies helped to make 6,000 B-17 and B-29 bombers. She met Norman, a sailor, on the dance floor at a USO canteen, married him, and moved back to Pennsylvania to raise a family. She speaks of him fondly and shares that he died at age 93, just before their 70th wedding anniversary. Decades ago, May began a letter-writing campaign to newspapers, veterans organizations, TV stations, to promote a national Rosie the Riveter Day, to recognize those contributions of all the American women who helped in the fight against Hitler. In early 2000, her story was in a local paper, and the idea took flight. By 2017, March 21 would become the official annual Rosie the Riveter Day. By sweet coincidence, March 21st is May's birthday. There was a celebration in the Lincoln Room of the Capitol in Washington, D.C. She continued her quest, this time for gold, the Congressional Medal of Honor for all Rosies. By another sweet coincidence, Congress announced it in 2020 on September 11, the anniversary of another day in our history marked with sacrifice. May has kept the legacy of Rosie alive by making red polka dot bandanas like the one in the poster from 1942. She used the same fabric to make masks during COVID with requests from 50 states and 11 countries. May has been on every TV network, speaks all over the country, including at Normandy on the 75th anniversary of D-Day. She even kissed an astronaut who walked on the moon. She rides in floats in national parades, works with the Girl Scouts to inspire a new generation of young women to become all they can be. Since we spoke in 2020, she was recognized at the 80th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, received a Lifetime Achievement Award at a ceremony in Salt Lake City, and became the Twilight Wish Foundation's first annual Senior Advocate of the Year, an award named in her honor. She's met John McCain, Nancy Pelosi, Congressional Medal of Honor winner Woody Williams, and was on Meet the Press. Recently, she was in the Netherlands to represent all the Rosies. People ask if she's going to write a book, and May says, I'm too busy. She was especially moved when she was seated with the veterans at the Pearl Harbor ceremony. May says, many important people have told me that if it hadn't been for the women, we may have lost the war.
now at age 96, a great-great-grandmother of three. When I called May in August, she apologized for her delay in answering the phone. She was outside painting the woodwork on her windows. I called her a few times this week, but no answer. So I sent an email and her reply, Marianne, I'm on my way to Europe, coming back on the Queen Mary. I'll be home soon. May says, I love people. People today need to remember to respect each other. I was born happy, healthy, and vital, and I plan to keep going. I tell my friends, get out of that rocking chair and keep going. It made me think of Rosie with her sleeve pulled up, showing her muscle and saying, we can do it. We salute you, May Cryer, Rosie the Riveter, your real champion. Thank you for listening to your radio doctor this morning and every Saturday at our usual time of 5 p.m. in the afternoon. Listen to this show again and all of our shows on odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. Thanks to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, and for support from Rothman Orthopedics and Genentech. Next week, tune in to learn about back pain, causes and treatments from another great Rothman specialist, Dr. Saloni Sharma. Belated Happy Veterans Day. A very special thank you to the men and women of the armed forces from the past and present who sacrifice every day when they put themselves in harm's way and with all the time they're separated from loved ones. These are the people who defend our liberty. And a sincere thank you as well to their families. This is your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, and safe week with the ones you love and always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is paid for by Your Radio Doctor, LLC. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Your Radio Doctor and their guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm always striving to live my healthiest life, so I need a health plan that has my back. With Independence Blue Cross, I get access to the largest network of doctors and hospitals in the region and free virtual doctor visits 24-7. Plus, with premiums as low as $0 per month, I can stay on top of my health and keep my budget in check. Independence has given me coverage I can count on, and they'll do the same for you. Explore your coverage options and enroll today at ibx.com.